And now, part two of our interview with Dr. Hughes, Dr. Gallahue, and Dr. Young on the consensus statement on the 2020-2021 residency application process, previously recorded on June 23rd. It's really helpful for students to know what they should not do in addition to what they should do. I know every one of y'all listening to this is like, oh my God, at risk, that's me. Odds are, that is not you. What we want is Mo Slow. Mo Slow, Mo Slow. Moving on to the next point, uh, what if I'm a student unable to get a departmental or residency backed slow to begin with? That's a great question, Ryan. And and gosh, in my heart of hearts, I think I can speak for all three female presidents on the call right now. We hope that that's not the case, right? We're doing everything we can to connect students to people that we know to ensure that they can get that, that spot that they need. If it happens, though, the next best thing is going to be sort of the next best thing, right? And we're all either going to or in the specialty that is prided itself on pivoting and managing with, you know, less information than you otherwise would love. So like, is that a rotation at a site that doesn't have a residency? And so you get a, a, a non-slow from that? Great. So I'm really excited because in addition to having, you know, subspecialty opportunities or a slow that's based from a non-EM faculty member, both of those are available on CORD's website. CORD has sort of taken the lead and offered students a, a third option, which I think is really exciting to make sure that students don't get left behind. Dr. Gallahu? So so uh, one of the things that we're trying to do is we're actually, we are putting out an OSLO. So the OSLO is off service or other rotation is what the O stands for. So we have the OSLO that is now posted on the CORD website. This is an opportunity for you on a, you know, a rotation that demonstrates, you know, if you're on a rotation like general surgery, internal medicine, family medicine, OB, you know, program, you know, those rotations that really you get to exemplify the clinical abilities that you have, the clinical thought processes, and you have difficult patients on those rotations. You can get a letter that is an OSLO from those uh, rotation directors or from the faculty that you're on. They're for faculty, but they're from faculty who are non-emergency medicine who have seen you in a clinical capacity perform well. Uh, so, so just so you know, we have some op- we have thought about how can we try to showcase you as an applicant when you're a medical student, and the OSLO is the way we're going to do that. And so it is now posted on the CORD website. It is a great opportunity for a standardized approach to a letter. So yes, we have the OSLO. Awesome. So if I'm hearing Dr. Gallagher right, so you don't want to be slow scolded. You want to get a letter from maybe a clerkship director or a program director, maybe in surgery and full medicine, maybe some of these other specialties. You can get this oh slow. So I heard you say, and I like your language, that the gem of the application, the gem slow would be from a residency-based group established program that would supplement an application. Can you really maybe frame how some of these other letters and how much emphasis goes into some of these one-offs, the non-EM slow or maybe the O slow? Could you comment on those? Yeah. Well, I will say that, you know, it should be a faculty that has worked with you. So I will say it's not a one-off. You know, one of the things that I think is really a valuable um, piece of, of, of the O slow is that you're frequently working with, some, with a faculty member 
you know, day in, day out, maybe on a surgery rotation where it's, you know, particularly it's truly the 80 hours a week where maybe things don't always go well. Maybe everybody's a little stressed out or internal medicine where you've had some difficult patients or difficult outcomes or, you know, whatever, whatever those issues are. But you are frequently on some of these off services working with the same faculty member over and over and over again for a full month rotation. If you get the opportunity to work with a faculty member like that, where you have showcased your empathy, compassion, clinical skills, ability to parse through a chart, discuss with patients, discuss with family members, communicate with your team members, that is the perfect person to ask for an Oslo letter. And I just want to add in there, this isn't like some crazy new thing that we're doing. Um, the standard for emergency medicine residency applications has always been two ESLOs, so you know your home and your away rotation, or your two away rotations, depending on your institution. And there's typically been a third off-service letter involved. What this initiative does is it takes that off-service letter, which is usually like a mishmash of adjectives, and it focuses it into something that program directors can actually use to learn useful things about you as an applicant and make sense of across students. We know it's not going to be perfect, but it's going to be better than somebody just pontificating random thoughts about you onto a piece <laughs> of paper because it's going to actually ask the questions that we want answered about your potential future as an emergency physician. And part of the problem with the narrative letters is that, you know, quite honestly, they, they often, there is this mismatch. On top of it, there's often a fair amount of gender bias language. What we have found in the slows is the slows actually mitigate gender bias in letter writing. So, you know, that's another piece of all this. We also know that, you know, most of these narrative letters people don't read because nobody knows how to read them. It takes three to four minutes to read a, le a narrative letter. It takes 30 seconds to read a slow. So these letters will suddenly become much more impactful because they're going to be directed. They're going to be somewhat standardized. Well, they are standardized, but the language that gets used will be more standardized. So, you know, we're, we're working really hard for equity across the board. I want to share a little secret to students that they may not otherwise realize. On the back end of some of those narrative letters, uh, you can often see even the wrong gender being used in pronouns because it's like a copy-paste uh, term and that it's a standard letter that that letter writer has used for years and sort of just changes a couple adjectives and may or may not forget to change uh, the pronouns. So the reason why Oslo's are going to be so good for you this year is that it's really easy on the letter writer to fill them out and it's going to be way more applicable to you. Now, does that mean a narrative letter is not good? No, right? If you have a non-clinical opportunity or you know someone really well, a narrative letter is still going to be exceptional. Uh, but if you did a rotation and spent a couple of shifts with a general surgeon, the Oslo is the way to go. I think the other caveat though is that students have asked me a numer numerous times already, well, hey, I, you know, I was being fairly proactive and I already got several of my letters from my third year clerkships. Uh, should I go back and, and ask them for the Oslo? One, kudos to you for being so on top of it. I, I definitely was not. But two, I don't think it's unreasonable, right? Academic medicine is meant to, to be there to support the next generation of, of physicians. And converting a narrative letter to a, an Oslo is not really time consuming. So I don't think students should be afraid to do that. It's certainly not required, but don't be afraid to ask for it. That's like the job of every academic physician in the country. I 100% agree. You know, there's also the, the internal terminology for various programs is really interesting. You know, it, it, it makes it really whiffy when you're like trying to figure out what they mean by 
phenomenal, excellent, exceptional. You don't know what people's internal terms mean. And it's also on you guys as students to advocate for yourselves. And part of that is asking your letter writers to give you what you need for your application. And there's no question that an Oslo is going to be more impactful in your application than a narrative letter. So you shouldn't hesitate to hold your head high and ask for one. It's also really easy to fill out. I think that's one other piece of it is it's very, very easy for them to fill out. It is a number of click boxes. They can cut and paste from their narrative letter. It's like, I think it's about 250 words, if I recall. So it's, it's, you know, it's short. They can, if they want to cut and paste from their narrative piece, but just a bunch of click boxes, it really shouldn't take very much time. So for students who may feel like they need to get a, a two slows, which it, it's seeming increasingly likely that they shouldn't do that because they might want to make up for some other aspect of their application, is a potential strategy to get the one E slow and then also seek out in addition to that O slows? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you're still going to have the same number of letters in your emergency medicine application that you had before. The difference this year is that ideally only one of those is going to be an e slow, but gotcha. you definitely can get o slows to fill out the remainder of your letter slots. And then there's also the other slow format for non-residency affiliated emergency medicine rotations that I was going to suggest maybe Fiona talk to us about. Well, we have a couple of letters. We have a letter that also shows subspecialties. So there's a slow for, for the subspecialties and those identify, uh, you know, what the, what subspecialty those are for. Uh, and then we also have, you know, an alternative uh, slow letter for people that are at community sites that don't have uh, an affiliated residency program. So we've got a couple of slows out there to hopefully I, uh, you know, allow for people to, to, to really kind of showcase who they are. Again, we want to showcase people who, where they are. We want to have standardized uh, evaluation forms, but we also are trying to make sure that everybody has a packet that they can be looked at. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's all these different opportunities to really, if you, if you have a challenge application, try to get as many of these alternative slows as possible. What we want is most slow. Mo slow, mo slow. Come to the Cord website. Look at the slows. It is. Uh, we have multiple slows there, so it's uh, you know it's it's appropriate. So mo slows. It's really helpful for students to know what they should not do in addition to what they should do. And Ryan, your question is is well pointed. Students are going to try to do everything they can to put their best foot forward as they should. One of the things that pre COVID, now in the setting of COVID, that's always been true, is you don't write the paper, submit it, and then don't tell your parents what you got the grade, like in terms of a grade. So don't go do an EM general fourth year rotation and not ask for a slow because the, the assumption is, is that you bombed and thus didn't ask for the letter. So I would be very cautious on trying to get that second one. It's very clear. I'm going to yell it from this, like from the rooftop, one and only one E slow without question. But if you're trying to, to mitigate or navigate the system, definitely don't do a rotation and then not ask for a letter because that's going to be seen poorly. We look at the transcripts. We will call people. We will, you know, we will find out what happened. Please don't, don't try to, don't, don't try to, 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 yeah, hide things because that doesn't go well. And it's exactly, that is the assumption. If you don't have something that is reflected on your on your application, we're gonna assume that you bombed or did something really, really bad um, on that rotation. <laughs> so let's move on to interviews because that's where the consensus statement sort of takes us next. 
Um, and in bullet point number four here, you know, it, it says explicitly all EM residency interviews should be conducted virtually. And I think a lot of places were headed that way anyway. But here, you know, just plainly says really all of them should be done virtually, uh, which is interesting because it sort of raises some logistical um, challenges, but also uh, it frees up a lot of time for students to actually do these interviews if they're not traveling and spending money. And um, so I'm really happy that this was addressed in bullet point number five now, that students should ideally interview at 12 EM residency programs with an absolute max of 17. So uh, tell me, where did those numbers come from and how absolute is absolute? So that was evidence-based advice. Uh, We were very careful to base the recommendation on the number of interviews that are actually needed to match in emergency medicine. So when you look at the curve, and these data are available on the NRMP website and other places, when you look at the curve of, you know, percent of students matched against number of interviews they do, you start approaching 100% match rate at 12 interviews, and you never get any closer than that. Um, So there's a maybe tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of students who might never match, even if they do a lot more than 12, but the vast majority are going to match at 12, and they don't get any additional benefit by doing more. Now, we did recognize that there's a handful of students who have unique circumstances. Maybe they're couples matching, which, you know, throws a wrench in the plans. That's the most common one. There are students who are at risk for other various reasons and might need to get themselves in front of more programs to explain their particular situations. And we wanted to have some leeway for that group. But there's no evidence that they benefit from going above those those thresholds. I mean, even 17, that's our absolute max, and that is a lot of interviews. If you're not going to match at 17, you may not be a competitive candidate to match an emergency medicine period. Yeah, 100% agree with you. I mean, you know, we've seen a lot over the last five years, we've seen uh, uh, sort of some concerning circumstances. We've found that in surveys, we found that that sometimes applicants are triple booking interview days and then canceling last minute, which again, you know, compromises other students' abilities to take those uh, more and more people are interviewing at more spots than they need to, and that limits the number of interview spots for other candidates. So, you know, program directors don't have infinite capacity. There's no more resources going to program directors despite all those applications. You know, the, the increase of applications, and if people sort of interview hoard, that really is a problem for every single person. It's a problem for students, it's a problem for clerkship directors, and it's a problem for program directors. So really, 12 should be the number for most people. And one other thing for the students, I know every one of y'all listening to this is like, oh my God, at risk, that's me. Odds are that is not you. Um, If you are the kind of student who is taking the initiative to listen to us talking about this issue and you take your application seriously, you're probably not in that group. But there is a um, defined set of things that put an applicant at risk. So failing step one um, is one of those things. Failing a uh, clerkship or major preclinical course is another one of those things. Being in the bottom 10% of your class, if your class ranks, is one of those things. Now, please, you know, those of us with imposter and inferiority complexes, don't just arbitrarily decide that you're in the bottom 10% of your class. That would typically come to you from, you know, your dean and your um, application meeting um, as they prepare to write your, um, your dean's letter. So if you have evidence that 
any of those apply to you, by all means, take advantage of the higher application um, range. It's very common, by the way, that those kinds of things, while they put you at risk, are not the kiss of death. Um, it's quite common that there are reasons why those things happen that are readily explainable and can be mitigated by other aspects of your application. It just requires that you cast a bit of a wider net and that you probably have to tell your story to a few more people to find the right match. Most people are not at risk, but at risk is really that step one failure, the failure of a core clerkship, um, a professionalism violation, or being in that lower 10% of, of your class. Those are really it. So we hear the goal of doing 12 interviews. So if we see that goal, and we don't want to do more than 17, we want to be equitable, we don't want to go crazy, don't want to get exhausted. I'm exhausted just hearing about 17 interviews. If we see that goal, it, what, how do we get there? Like how many applications should we be sending out? So until we get something like you know, Match.com for you know, residencies and students or something using smart data, we've just got to kind of look out. So can we speak to recommendations on the actual applications to send out for the typical person? Yeah, so this absolutely blew my mind. So I just reviewed a paper looking at drivers of the phenomenon of over-application in emergency medicine. And I learned that last year, the average number of emergency medicine programs that matched applicants applied to was 49. What? 49 programs. That's like no. nutballs, right? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Wow. What is that even about? And that's the average. So that means that like your top applicants, your AOA people, you know, the ones uh, who are going to just like waltz into any program and get whatever they want. Those guys are applying to 25, 30, 40 programs. And you can imagine that the students who are genuinely at risk are probably applying to 100. Um, so it's really, really insane what's happened out there. And it's not fair to students. And honestly, it's not fair to the poor program directors. I mean, we want them to be able to carefully and holistically review applications. They can't do that if every student's applying to 49 places. So we need to rein that in a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you know, there was an NEJM that talked from a program director's perspective of what a holistic application review means. And it's, you know, if, if you're talking about half an hour for, for a review and 1,200 applications, you're talking about, you know, many, many, many weeks. We don't have that time. So, uh, you know, please, yeah, <laughs> you know, the average number of, of applications really should be about 36 for the average person. You know, the person who's AOA, top 10% of their class, doing great, probably is closer to 2025. 20, you know, it's it's the average student, the middle of the class, doing well, but not phenomenal. 36 is probably the right number. And 49 is insane. Stop it, people. Stop it, stop it, stop it. I will just talk on the program directors like longevity. We love our job, but this really hurts. Well, we gotta, we gotta understand where that comes from, right? And gosh, this year more than ever, I could I can empathize with students' positions, Elise. I don't know what you're going through, but I can empathize with the fact that it must be scary. And so you're going to do everything you can to try to maximize your chances on an individual basis. So this is where I'm going to just do the mantra that in anywhere in medicine, you're going to get conflicting information. And so evidence-based advising is a thing. And that's where the evidence shows that a three-to-one ratio, if you want 14 interviews, times that by three, and that's how many places you should apply to if you're an average applicant. And then do some, you know, 
math on the margins if you're really strong or less competitive. But I, I think just make sure that it's not because I, I mean, I don't want to throw my dean under the bus, but I remember being a, a fourth year med student and sitting down and being told that I should apply to 70 or, or more programs as a couples match. And I was not the person that should be applying to 70 programs. So true. So true. That's why we need a consensus statement because deans, unfortunately, and it's not, it's not just your dean, it's, it's deans across the board are really, really pushing students to over apply. There are some serious downsides to that. It, you know, the over application is a serious problem in emergency medicine and other specialties too. But this is, you know, this is specialty we're talking to, and this is our specialty. And if we want to fix it, we have got to, as a group, fix it. Because, and, and we ha- that's why we wanted a consensus statement. We wanted to make sure that we are united as a specialty. Because deans are saying crazy things because their only concern is whether or not students match, and they'll give you crazy advice, which harms students too. It's costly to overapply. It's costly and it's crazy. All right, I'm just an associate dean here, so throwing shade at the deans. All right, I'm not talking about doing this. I'm, we're trying to we're trying to help. All right, we're trying to help. And we want to help you do your job. So we're looking at the evidence so that you guys can do your job and and be aligned with us so that we can all work together. We want to work together. It's just unfortunately the the, the story that Hannah's telling, Doctor Hughes is telling. It's over and over and over again. We hear it from student after student after student, and it's just really hard. I'm sure it's hard for Dr. Young to, to have, you know, I don't know how her dean works or it's hard when you're, you're giving advice and people say, well, but my dean said this, or my other person said this, and you're just trying to, let's go with the evidence. This is what the evidence says. Let's all be aligned. We're all in the same boat. We just have different hats on. And it's not just the deans, it's us as advisors too. So, I mean, one of the things we're doing on the CDEM side um, is a series of webinars for our own faculty so that we can be more effective advisors and we can all kind of be on the same page in telling students how many programs to apply to. I mean, the bottom line is that like, we get pretty attached to y'all. We love you guys and we want you to be happy and we want you to act well. And if that means telling you to apply to a few more extra programs, well, no skin off my nose, right? But, but it's not ultimately helpful for you and it's not helpful for the field as a whole because if I have my strong students over apply, they're gonna get interviews that really should go to students at other institutions or students with maybe a little bit of a weaker profile because they're gonna end up with more interviews than they need to match well. And what we want, again, is for everybody to have a fair bite at the apple. It's a wonderful specialty and everybody who wants a career in emergency medicine should be able to build one. That is exactly right. I couldn't say it better. One of my last questions would be, uh, in this COVID interview cycle, what should a student do if they are actually invited for an in-person interview given the circumstances? Gosh, Ryan, I think that when uh, the AMA, ACGME, and every EM organization in the country has all agreed that we should be doing interviews virtually, I really hope that that doesn't happen. If it does, please email me. I would uh, love to talk to that program directly. But this is the part where you just say, I'm a med student that's confined to the to the requirements of my school and I'm not allowed to travel. And it's as easy as that. Uh, so hopefully it's not a problem. I can't imagine it will be, but appreciate the concern for sure. I agree. If if that happens, please let me know as well. Uh, you know, Cord is happy to, to talk to that program director, but agree. You know, most students are not allowed to travel. 
All right, so to recap, this consensus statement, um, which is actually titled Consensus Statement on the 2020 to 2021 Residency Application Process for U.S. Medical Students Planning Careers in Emergency Medicine in the Main Residency Match. That is quite a title, I have to say. But this consensus statement, it sounds like, uh, is really a, a set of guidelines to even the playing field to really make it more equitable and have students who maybe would be disadvantaged have a better chance at getting interviews matching successfully into EM. Um, And specifically, it sounds like, so each student is recommended to do just one EM rotation, ideally at a residency-affiliated site. From that rotation, we'll get one slow. Additional O slows or subspecialty slows are certainly fine, but students should not be trying to get additional residency-backed slows. Interviews this year are going to be conducted virtually, and students should ideally interview at 12 programs with an absolute max of 17. You have summed that up beautifully. There's uh, two groups of people to whom this consensus statement does not apply. So one group is the military match candidates, people who are potentially in the military match. Those folks need to do two-away rotation that is a requirement of the military match. So even if somebody ends up not Uh, being declined or or excluded from the military match. If they're possibly going to the military match, that is a requirement. The other group of people for whom this does not apply is the non-U.S. citizen international medical graduate. Those folks do need to apply slightly more broadly and, uh, and probably interview slightly more broadly. So those are the two groups for whom this consensus statement does not fit. For everybody else, this consensus statement and all of those caveats that you just listed are absolutely true. Well, wonderful. I want to say a special thanks to our team today, especially Ryan from SAM Rams and really having the leadership to jump out and get this high-powered group together. Dr. Gallahu from Cord, Dr. Hughes from EMRA, and Dr. Young with CDEM. Thank you so much for spending your time. Thank you for your service to the EM team, and thanks for your leadership. I think we've got a great recommendation for our students that's going to help them become the next EM stud. So on behalf of my colleague, ER Dr. Nate, this is your EMED coach, Dr. Scott Weir, signing off for another edition of the EM Stud Podcast. Rotate well, my friends. <laughs>